Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. Joining us now is the radio voice of Harvard University football and Boston University hockey. He's the author and co-author of over 15 books, including the most memorable games in Giants history, the only game that matters, the Harvard-Yale rivalry, um, as well as Beanpot, 50 years of thrills, spills, and chills on the ice with Wayne Gretzky and on the court with Grant Hill. He literally wrote the book on Boston University hockey. His book, Boston University Hockey, chronicles the many National Collegiate Athletic Association, Eastern Colle- Collegiate Athletic Conference hockey. Hockey East and Beanpoint Championship teams, moments, as well as coaches, Jack Kelly and Jack Parker, and the overall legacy of those who have donned the scarlet and white sweaters. Who better to get an inside look at what the New York Ranger fans can expect from the 35th head coach in franchise history? It is a pleasure to welcome Bernie Corbett to WLIE 540 AM Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Bernie. Welcome. Thanks for the uh, the very uh, kind words in the in the intro. I'll try to uh, I'll try to live up to those accolades. Now. <laughs> so, pressure's on. You say, yeah, the pressure is on, but I have a feeling you'll <laughs> rise to the occasion. Your connection to BU hockey dates back to 1978 when you first enrolled at BU. Um, you've made a lasting impression on BU Hockey, and more specifically, uh, the call of BU Hockey on the radio. You begin your career at BU assisting equipment manager Carl James, then moving up to full-fledged equipment manager. Uh, when you finished your studies at BU in 83, you provided the opportunity to provide color on BU broadcast alongside uh, a Rick O'Kane for two seasons. In 85, the opportunity arises for you to become the play-by-play voice of the Terriers, and the rest is history. So looking at hockey reference and getting a time... Th- uh, some time to speak to David uh, Thursday at the press conference. If my calculations are correct, you basically have been around the team long enough to see every single facet of David Quinn's BU experience from his three years as a Terry defenseman to his five years as an associate coach and his five years of head coach, correct? Yeah, that is, that is absolutely correct. And, and uh, my, my association with, uh, with BU hockey uh, goes, goes back even further. My parents went to BU. My grandfather went to BU. We grew up with season tickets to the games. It was a real family thing. And I, uh, I, of course, I spent 35 years of my life with Jack Parker, a mentor and, and godfather to us all. And I used to say to Jack, uh, Jack, you know, I went to my first BU hockey game in 1967. I was seven and you were the captain. Wow. And, uh, playing against Ken Dryden from Cornell at the time, so I'm really showing my age. But uh, no, it, it, no, it's absolutely true. It's a lifelong association. It's a, it's a, it's a passion beyond words. And uh, the uh, the time uh, that I spent uh, as as a as an undergrad, uh, as the equipment manager, gave me an opportunity. You mentioned the uh, the first year working with the uh, JV team, and we had another announcement this week. A guy that I started with day one at BU and. September of 1978, became the general manager of the Minnesota Wild this week. So I want to make sure I get a plug-in for Paul Fenton uh, because he was on that JV hockey team his first year. He ended up the captain of the BU team in 1982, and he's gone right up the ladder and much deserved with all of his efforts to be a general manager. And uh, being the equipment manager for Jack Parker gave me an opportunity to get into the press box. It was something I always wanted to do because when you were the senior equipment manager at BU, it still holds today. You had an opportunity to work a system with the coaches. It was kind of a, ahead of their time, I guess, with analytics. Uh, a little bit more of a primitive system to chart the game and uh, really go in-depth 
and spent a lot of time with the coaches. And uh, that uh, that couple with the fact that I was always interested in broadcasting gave me the opportunity to get on the air when I got out of school. And, and you're absolutely right. As far as Coach Quinn, um, I, I always have said to everybody that uh, from Jack Parker to David Quinn, it was like going from my second father to my brother. <laughs> With, uh, with David uh, becoming the head coach when, when he did for the past five years. But uh, he was a tremendous player, uh, came in obviously very highly touted. He was the highest draft pick to ever come to BU as a freshman in 1984. He was the first first-rounder. Uh, Scott Young came the next year as a first-rounder of the Hartford Whalers. And, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was a big deal, him coming into the, in the program from, uh, from the Kent School at the time and, and uh, very, very much ballyhooed and... and uh, Watching him as a player, he was, it was tremendous to watch uh, during his career. And uh, when he had the opportunity to come back to BU uh, as the associate head coach uh, was, was pretty special. And he was uh, absolutely instrumental as uh, the builder, primary builder of that national championship team for BU in 2009 for Jack Parker. So let's go back with those 84 games that he played defense for Coach Parker. As you mentioned, very you know highest draft pick ever to come to BU. He was the 13th overall in that 84 draft at a Kent school, as you mentioned. He passed up turning pro and immediately after draft you know being drafted, played for BU, which in the 80s was not always the 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 route that guys went, especially U.S. hockey players. If they were drafted and they had the opportunity, a lot of them went. Do you remember um, speaking to him when he first came in and why he decided to go the college route as opposed to, to maybe going to the AHL at that point and, and trying to get to the NHL quicker? Yeah, I, I think it was, it was a, a much, much different. I mean, you had, uh, you had a couple of examples at that time. I mean, you know, like Bobby Carpenter being the you know, first overall uh, cover of Sports Illustrated out of high school, never went to college. Jeremy Roenick bypassed college, but uh, but for the, for the most part, it was it, it was it was pretty much an aberration uh, for a guy to be a first rounder uh, coming to college. It, you know, wasn't happening that often in in the early to mid '80s. And I don't know uh, with David and getting to know him pretty early on. I mean. You know, he was his personality. I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit, but you know, he was kind of a mature beyond the years. Somebody, you know, I'm only five years older than him, but uh, being a young broadcaster and him coming in as a freshman, it was someone that you got to know pretty quickly. And you know, I spent time talking sports above and beyond hockey with, and it was just so engaging with his personality. But I don't know if that was ever on the radar screen at that time for him to to bypass the college route. Uh, in terms of uh, in terms of his development, I mean, uh, it, it is so much. Uh, it, it's such a complete departure uh, when you consider uh, the numbers uh, in the '80s of guys that uh, that took the college route or had any kind of a uh, college uh, affiliation or background that played in the NHL to uh, to where we are now, guys. Where uh, it's about 30 percent. Yeah. The NHL right now has a college background. I mean, it's just it, it, it's a completely it's it just uh, so completely different uh, from one to the other. But getting to know him early on, I don't think that ever was really a consideration for him to uh, bypass the uh, the BU experience. Big part of that also was the Olympics at the time. You got to remember that uh, the motivation, uh, particularly for U.S. hockey players at that time, was to play in the Olympics. And of course, this was pre pros to the Olympics, and uh, and David. And uh, a number of the guys uh, from uh, uh, from uh, Eastern schools, BUBC, 
uh, ended up playing on that 1988 Olympic team, and he certainly was ticketed for that 1988 Olympic team with Mike Richter, who was at Wisconsin, Brian Leach that was at B.C., Kevin Stevens that was at B.C., Clark Donatelli that was at B.U., Scott Young that was at B.U. I mean, that was a big, that was a big part of the equation and a big motivation for these guys uh, to, uh, to uh, be cognizant of their Olympic year. And if they were an elite American player, playing in the Olympics was a big deal. And uh, that's why you had a lot of guys that uh, went uh, from uh, the 84 Olympic team uh, played in the 84 Olympics that had a college background, and then more than likely then you'd turn pro after the Olympics. And that happened. That was quite prevalent with the guys. If you look, look back at the guys in that 88 team, like the Richters and the Leeches and so forth, Leach only played one year at B.C., and then he returned pro after the 88 Olympics. Richter played two years at Wisconsin, turned pro. Uh, Kevin Stevens, I think that was his third year at B.C., and then he turned pro and so forth. So that was a big part of it that doesn't exist uh, of course, this year we went back to no pros, so it might be something that will be a consideration in the future if we, if we keep on that route and the NHL doesn't allow players to go back. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the Olympics because after uh, David's junior season, he tried out, as you mentioned, for the 88 U.S. Olympic hockey team. However, during that tryout, he was diagnosed right. with hemophilia B, also known as Christmas disease, a rare disorder which prevents blood from clotting properly. And, and due to that disorder, he's forced to retire from the game. I have to imagine, you know, even as strong an individual as he was and as outgoing he was, that's a pretty traumatic thing for a a 20-year-old to go through. How important was the the support of legendary coach Jack Parker in helping David deal with that news? And do you remember, you know, him coming back to BU after that whole, you know, the, the disorder was found? I, I remember it pretty vividly because it was uh, it, it was a pretty uh, you know a, a pretty severe situation, and I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that uh, that it could have claimed his life. I mean, uh, in terms of not knowing what it was and then finding out what it was, and the the rarity, the severity of it, and uh, and and the whole blood clotting issue. I mean, it was it was touch and go, and I can remember that whole time. That he was in the hospital. It was, uh, it was over a period of weeks, as I remember, that he was in the hospital that summer. And it did. It all started. He was playing pickup basketball. He was pretty innocuous. And all of a sudden, the ankle blew up on him. And, and uh, it got to be a situation where they, they, they went in a little deeper. And as I recall, uh, Dr. Leach uh, at BU, very, very highly regarded, uh, was a team doctor. He was an Olympic team doctor. He was a world class tennis player. Uh, really sensitive to the needs of athletes, and he was just a rock star in his field. And I'm pretty sure that he was the one that originally kind of scratched below the surface a little bit and realized that not only did David have this rare disease, but he had had it for a while. And I can remember talking to uh, you know talking to David uh, about uh, playing. You know, he was an outstanding all-around athlete at Kent School. He was a you know, three-sport athlete with football and baseball and and uh, and hockey. And uh, in football, he played fullback. He played linebacker in football for the Kent School. And, and I can remember him talking about, you know, he'd play football and, you know, Kent, the Ken Avon game or whatever, you know, playing in the New England prep football, you know, circuit there in the season. And, you know, he'd, he'd be bruised up after the games. And he'd just say, well, you know, I'm playing football. You know, of course you're bruised up. You know, so what? Well, it turns out the so what was, you know, he was, he was, he was kind of on the, on the bubble without even knowing it, that the, the severity of what he had it could have killed him at, at a number of points along the way until they, they finally figured it out. And as far as Coach Parker and his influence, there's not enough that you can say about Jack Parker, the person, uh, as, as much as Jack Parker, the hockey coach. He's so much more uh, and has been so much more 
beyond and not just to David, but to, you know, Travis Roy. And I could go right yeah. down the list of guys that he's helped. And no exception with David. I can remember you, you know, getting the reports back about, you know, what was going on and how things were going and the fact that it was a career-ending situation. And, uh, and he was the captain, uh, co-captain-elect of the team that year in 87-88, along with Tom Ryan, who was his roommate. Tom was my broadcast partner for 25 years doing the games at BU uh, as my color analyst. So we're all very, very close. And, uh, and, and David and, uh, and Tommy, they were, they were roommates. They were, uh, you know, they were the prospective co-captains. Now all of a sudden your career's over. And uh, I remember right away uh, Coach Parker wanted David to be part of the program and, uh, and, and to be engaged and to be part of it at the time. Uh, ben Smith who was a very strong influence on David. He was, I guess, his main, his main claim to fame now was he was the coach of the first uh, women's Olympic gold medal team yeah, and the first awesome. women's Olympics in 98. And David was a real, uh, uh, Ben was a real mentor to David along with Jack and uh, got him involved in coaching. I mean, he was involved as, I guess you could almost say, a grad assistant without portfolio, I guess, of that team. You know, he was around the team all year and uh, working with Jack, working with Ben, I think that got him his first exposure to coaching and, uh, and also was able to channel uh, in another direction his love for the game and his passion for the game. And, and uh, very early on, he was able to kind of make a transition to, well, you know, maybe, maybe this is my calling. Maybe this is fate has handed me a tough hand, but uh, maybe this is the route that I can take. And, of course, now, you know, the rest is history with the, with the, the, the track and the odyssey that he went on from that point to, to where he is now. It's interesting because, you know, when he first got that diagnosis, he retired, but then he actually tried to self-fund right. himself to try and, and, and get cured. He, he was able to get back to hockey, actually played for the Binghamton Rangers, an affiliate, uh, a minor league affiliate of the Rangers, uh, played yep. for the uh, Cleveland Lumberjacks of the International League, and like you mentioned, then he got into to coaching, and his first stop it was Hockey East as assistant coach for Northeastern University, where you obviously saw him come back in. Also had another BU alum on that coaching staff in Jim Craig, and uh, you know yep. both under the Ben Smith. Uh, you know, when he came in, did you get to talk to him about what that transition was? And, and still, he was a young guy. Um, oh, yeah. Yep. And, and, and how was that transition? A lot of people sometimes see that, and it, it kind of it, – it, I'm trying to think of the proper word. Well, if you're very young in particular, you have to – it's tough to prepare yourself for it. So that's really the question. Right. And it's almost how, how much bittersweet. Say, like yeah, hi, right. this is it for me. This is how I can do it. How hard is it to say from wanting to be a player to saying, okay, now I have to – shift gears and, and and for some people the 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 last place they want to be yeah. when they can't go out and play the game is at the it's rink on a daily it, yeah. basis so did you get an opportunity yep. to talk to him about that and and what was his attitude at that point yeah i think well you mentioned about him about the, the opportunity to make a comeback and and uh i mean i can't remember uh you know anybody that you could have been pulling for more uh, than David because of because of the guy that he was, let alone anything relative to hockey, and uh, he got a hold of. Uh, it was actually a program where there was an experimental drug that he signed on for, and that drug he got on that drug and uh, had to inject himself. As I remember, I don't know if it was on a daily basis or whatever the dosage was, but there was a drug to treat his particular the rarity of the Christmas disease that allowed. That's how bad. He wanted to get back on the ice and to make another run. And once again, a big part of that, of that last run that he made, you mentioned about Binghamton and Cleveland, was to try out for the 92 Olympic team. Right. And, he was a, and I can remember, I'll tell you, vividly 
pulling for him and everybody following him around the BU program. How's Quinny doing? How's Quinny doing as that team was getting ready for the 92 Olympics? And we had Dave Silk uh, was, um, was our grad assistant coach uh, at BU during that 91-92 season. And I can remember like it was yesterday, him walking into the locker room, and he just walked up to me and he says, hey, he says, they cut Quinny. And he was like, I think he, I don't know, he was the last guy, but he was one of the last couple of cuts they made for that 92. It was heartbreaking to hear because of the run that he made. And, uh, and I can remember the, you know, the attention was, it, that he got at the time. I mean, they, it was picked up on. You probably go on YouTube, guys. Connie Chung interviewed him. I think it was Connie Chung for uh, NBC did a, a thing on, on uh, David at the time. You guys can probably get a hold of um, where he was interviewed about uh, the disease and the treatment and the trying out for the Olympics, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, but he gave it, I think, a big part of uh, him being able to, at that point, uh, being able to get into coaching was the fact that he was able to give it that one last shot. And, he, and I, I think if, if, if he didn't, I think that might have been a factor, as you guys allude to, in terms of being able to put it to rest and being able to say, okay, this is my, this is my career path now. Um, and and I think that I think he somewhat you know gave him closure you know to speak for him but you know you just had the awareness that it gave him closure to be able to have got back on the ice got himself in shape got himself going played pro hockey uh, obviously didn't fulfill the dream of playing in the NHL now he's got the dream of coaching in the NHL it's a whole different dream fulfilled but uh, the fact that he made a run at that '92 Olympic team and. Uh, I think that helped him maybe, you know, really kind of put it behind him and say, okay, you know, now, you know, 20, now a 25-year run from there. We're talking to Bernie Corbett, vo- voice of the uh, Boston University hockey team. And, you know, it's funny you mention that because, you know, you take a look. There's another guy who was one of the last cuts from an Olympic hockey team that was in the college <laughs> ranks and made the move to the NHL. Yeah. And the guy, guy has a pretty good track record in the late great Herb Brooks. But That's so, right. So That's l- right. Let's, uh, I'll give you another one. I'll give you another one. Harry Sinden was the right. last cut of the 60 Olympic team for, the, uh, for Canada. There's another one. For right. You. And had, uh, had a little bit of success with the, the Bruins, for sure. Uh, so, so you wrote a column this week for the New York Post that pinpointed a moment when David was an assistant in 2009 when the right. hockey world knew that he had what it took to be a coach. And that was with 4.08 remaining in the third period of the 2009 National Championship game, BU trailing underdog Miami of Ohio 3-1. to So can you pick up the story from, from there for those that didn't have the opportunity to read it in the post this week? I, I just, I just make, I'll just make one correction for you. When I talk about that game, you're talking about, the, you know, the, obviously the, the, uh, the, the game was the 2009 National Championship game. As I look at my, you know, my, championship ring from that year fellas i just say oh the disney movie oh yeah right yeah that's right uh but uh, yeah 408 left in the game uh bu was pretty heavy favorite and uh was 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 a team that certainly uh the with great expectations that year and from about the halfway point of the year certainly looked like a team that was infinitely capable of winning the national championship and was pretty much an odds-on favorite there was a few quirks of you know the hockey version of March Madness, that you had uh, some upsets along the way. Uh, Bemidji State got to the, uh, the national, uh, to the, uh, the Frozen Four that year in Washington was a complete, out of the blue, aberration. They made an unbelievable run. You had Vermont, who was a, uh, a big league rival for, uh, for uh, BU, like Victor Stahlberg on that team, uh, was a, had a, a great rivalry, a, a hockey East rival from the same league. The BU played in the semifinal, 
And then you had Miami, and a lot of people, you didn't know much about Miami, maybe to the common man or the common hockey. I believe they were like the 13th seed in the tournament. Uh, tremendous coach who's still there, a terrific coach with, uh, with Enrico Blasi. Uh, done a, an excellent job with that program. Great resume, great track record. Not, and not that old now, 10 years later. Still, I put them in the category of bright young coaches. And, uh, and they were, you know, they were the underdog. I mean, you know, you, depending on who you're talking to, it's how decided an underdog they were coming into that game. But they handled Bemidji, the Cinderella team. And uh, now, you're, now you're in the national championship game. And, and uh, you know, I'd say that, you know, really, was, BU was pretty much, uh, you know, it got the nod. And now and Miami played, I mean, they played just about a flawless game in terms of how they neutralized BU in that game, how they handled BU's speed, how they handled BU's depth, the fact that Jack Parker could pretty much roll four lines and all six of his defensemen and in terms of not really shortening the bench. I mean, it was a very deep BU team, team that had tremendous success, winningest team, and I think I said in the article, the winningest team in BU hockey history, that 34 wins coming into that championship game. And uh, all of that said, <laughs> 408 to go, Miami goes up by two. And, uh, and there wasn't a heck of a lot, and I think more importantly, it wasn't as if, you know, the goal would have been crushing no matter what. All of a sudden, you're in a championship game and you're down two goals with 408. But it was the, it was the tone of the game at that point and the fact that Miami had done such a fabulous job defensively uh, to really neutralize BU and uh, to really uh, play the game at a pace that was to their liking. And uh, it, the game needed to fundamentally change if, if BU was to have any kind of a chance. And that's where David stepped in. And, uh, and, and I remember getting the story right after the game. Uh, and then uh, uh, Scott Weigert uh, did a book uh, called Burn the Boats, which was the theme for the season. And uh, Scott did a great job. He's covered BU hockey for a long time, and he kind of chronicled the season. And he, he had it verbatim in the book as to the story that I got right at that time or right after the fact. And uh, David went down the bench, and, uh, you know, there was his – his, you know, his mentor and the godfather of BU hockey in his 36th year at the time, and you know, and 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 David went down and and uh, he stood up and he basically, you know, he said, hey, you know, he, you know, Jack, uh, you know, we got to pull the goalie, and and Jack just looked at him like, you know, it's it's too early, you know, we, we can pull the goalie now. He says, next offensive zone faceoff, we got to pull the goalie, and he got Jack to think about it to the point where uh, there was a TV timeout, and Jack kind of was still debating it between David and, and, and Mike Davis, the other assistant coach. They were kind of back and forth, back and forth. And as, as Jack said, he couldn't, he couldn't make up his mind, the TV timeout, and then had to take a timeout on top of that. You know, only allowed one timeout in hockey. But eventually, uh, Coach Quinn pleaded the case effectively enough to Coach Parker that with 331 left in the game, uh, Karen Milan, the BU goalie, was out. The extra tackle was on. And at that point, the desired effect was there in terms of the, the, the pace of the game, the direction of the game changed, and the, the ice began to tilt, and, uh, and, and, and BU started to take the play, and BU started to control the game in the offensive zone. There was one really hairy moment, which was not in the New York Post, where Miami ended up with, with a, an offside call on, on the verge of being able to put it in the open net, kind of sigh of relief. But other than that, BU really took control and, uh, and ended up scoring two goals in the last minute of the game to tie the game. Uh, Matt Gilroy of Future Rangers set up the, uh, the, the goal by Nick Benino, 
who's had some notoriety in, in the in the NHL, and uh, and then BU ended up winning the game in overtime, and and just the unfailingly the unfailing honesty of Coach Parker after the game, and you know once again he's a special special person. You know I think uh, what we've all learned as disciples of Coach Parker, you know David being, being the opportunity the. the very difficult task which he lived up to to succeed Jack Parker when you're succeeding an icon of 40 years the way that he did but I can remember getting down there to that press conference afterwards and Coach Parker that was the first thing when they got into it about the goaltending he said he, about pulling the goalie he said my he says you know my associate coach came down the bench David Quinn came down the bench to me and said we got to pull the goalie I said it was too early we went back and forth we pulled he just gave him complete credit for suggesting it for getting it out there in front of the head coach not being intimidated, but you know this is you know we we got to we got to do something. This is what we got to do, and uh, it was a pretty special moment that you know just uh, you know you, you you say some people have that look about them or that aura about them that uh, breeds success or breeds winning, and I think that's a really special moment in in David's career to date. Uh, that uh, that certainly uh, gives evidence of that. Well, I have a few minutes left, so I have a couple more questions before we let you go, and yep. and that should not be lost on anybody, the fact that he succeeded a legendary coach yep. and then had success, and that's not that's always right. an easy thing to do. Uh, I got the opportunity to speak to a, a player who played for him both at the college level and then at the AHL level on Thursday, and that's Kevin Shattenkirk, and oh, I spoke yeah. to him at length. And the two main <laughs> themes that Kevin really just kept reiterating to me were that you know, he holds players accountable, and he also yep. lets them know their roles. You've watched him coach these young men over the last five seasons. How does he, he hold players accountable, and will that translate to the pro level? Good. No, it's a, it's a great question. You certainly talked to the right guy. The first thing was texting back and forth uh, with, with Quinny about, you know, when it looked like he had the job. And I think one of the things that I said was I can hear Shattenkirk sitting there saying, he's back, you know, <laughs> because, because I'll tell you, David, David would, uh, would, would, would get on him pretty, pretty hard. And, uh, and Matt Gilroy and some of those guys, they, they're really, and, you know, as, as once again, you know how to handle guys and your most talented guys, you want to bring that out in them. And, uh, and, and I think that, uh, I think in terms of accountability, I, I think that what he's dealt with at BU I think is going to prepare him well because when you have a, you know, we like to call it another Coach Parker term, when you're, when you're coaching at a brand-name uh, university like Boston University in Division One NCAA hockey, I mean, the guys that Quinny was dealing with and the managing of egos, if you will, with elite players and first-round picks, very similar to the pros, and I think that's why it can translate. So I think that his ability to convey that accountability and that lack of it. I talk to Quinny all the time about, you know, we always go back and forth with, you know, the two words are accountability and entitlement. And, you know, you've got to have accountability and you've got to eliminate entitlement. And, uh, and I think he's been very good at that and bringing that out. Uh, his ability to attract players to the BU program, to attract elite players, to know that this is the place for you and this is the place where you're going to develop and you're going to get better. I think he's been able to get that across. And once he's got these guys... I mean, he I, he sat guys down. He's had guys, you know, Clayton Keller was in the stands. You know, I can think back a year ago, you know, finalist for the Calder, for the Calder Trophy right now in the NHL. And, uh, you know, and Matt Gilroy, you know, I can think about, you know, how tough he was on Matt Gilroy, you know, to bring out the best in Matt Gilroy or Kevin Shattenkirk and, and these guys. So I think that's going to play. I think it's going to translate because of his experience. Um, it, it's similar to the fact that he coached the national development team 
where you're constantly managing egos because you've got all those guys that are elite players and often high draft picks or high draft picks to be. He did that before he became, came back to BU to recruit, and then, of course, before he ends up becoming the head coach at BU. So I think, I think that's a good training ground for him. Totally agree. And even guys that didn't make it to the pros, he definitely made players better. Like Guys like Kevin Schaefer, there's a number of players that really I felt he got the most out of. And the one guy that I have been telling Ranger fans on social media, the guy to circle that I think is going to have the biggest jump in one season yeah, is Tony D'Angelo. I really think he's going to be the guy. He's a 22-year-old guy with a world of talent that has not been able to, to yep. be able to you know put it together. But he's the type of guy that, you know, Coach Quinn loves a guy that can move the puck, a defenseman with skill. So that's one of the guys. So lastly, what should New York Ranger fans expect from David Quinn? What should they expect? Uh, Well, I I was going to say, don't expect too much too early. I hope that there's a level of patience. And, it's uh, New York. It's, yeah, well, no, I know. Well, and, and also, truth be told with me, I'll just, just a quick personal story also is that, you know, you'll hate me for being a Red Sox season ticket holder. But you're but a also, because of my advanced age, I'm a Giants fan yes. when it comes to the NFL. Right. Okay. And, uh, and I'll tell you just a quick story about, about uh, Quinny there, because Quinny's a diehard Boston sports fan. I think he's already yeah, he's, stated that. Yeah, he told Stan Fischler that at the press it, conference. It, 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 exactly. And the two weeks leading up to that Super Bowl, uh, where, uh, as the New York Times, my favorite New York Times uh, headline, a perfect ending for the Giants. We all remember that Super Bowl. And for two weeks, Quinny and I were back and forth having some really animated and some very analytical and insightful discussions about that game and, and about you know breaking that game down, because I could always talk to Quinny on the level of a much higher level, not a Yahoo level. And I just got to tell you, the type of guy he is just from a personal level is the first phone call I got after that game, after the Giants won, as, the, as, as heartbroken as Quinny was, as any diehard Patriots fan, he picked up the phone and called me. He's like the first call I got to say, Bernie, what a great game. I know how happy you are. I know how sad I am. I think that says a lot about him personally, the type of guy that he is, you know, to kind of jump over the net at that moment. But, uh, but getting back to your original, your original question about, uh, about him, I, I hope there is a level of patience. I know it's New York, but I think – that it seems like with management, Jeff Gordon and, 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 and Dolan and all the statements that have been made about development, I really think if you, if, if you, you put your money on him right now in terms of his ability, you mentioned D'Angelo, his ability to deal with this team, you've stockpiled a number of draft picks. I, was re- I didn't know how many until I looked at it. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah. You know, there could be a makeover of this team with some really promising young elite talent. I think he's going to deliver. He's delivered at every level. Give him the time, allow him to develop, allow him to put in uh, his system, which I think is a modern system, and that's another thing that I think will translate well. We're talking about a college game and a pro game that have almost uh, come to a a, a meeting point. There's not any kind of a a big gulf between the two games right now. And, you know, when he talks about playing at a pace and he talks about speed and he talks about five men involved in the offense – and the defenseman becoming part of the offense, et cetera, et cetera. Yet he has that background defensively. You know, if this was an NFL team, you'd be talking about a, you know, they hired a defensive coordinator more or less. You know, case in point, uh, I don't know if anybody's ever going to equal that in, in the college ranks. They have all six of their defensemen on that national championship team have, you know, all of them played, and some of them are still playing in the NHL. Intel, right. Which, which, which is amazing. So for him to develop guys at that position, Charlie McAvoy, you know, from you know, <laughs> yeah. two years to go to the Bruins, and, and the list goes on and on. I, I, I really think 
give them the time. I know that's tough <laughs> in New York. That uh, you're going to be you're going to be rewarded. I think Ranger fans will be rewarded. Awesome, Bernie. Thank you so much for your time tonight. We'd like to invite you back to talk about your books. I mean, today was just focusing on on David Quinn sure. because you are the guy who definitely has the most insight to him. So we definitely wanted to get you up tonight, and uh, we will call on you down the road for sure as well. No, no problem. Glad to come back sometimes. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, fellas. You got it. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Bernie Corbett, the voice of the Boston Terriers hockey team.